everyone welcome to talking research i am asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence, both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. Today's guest is Dr. Sriparna Chattopadhyay. Sriparna is an Indian researcher. She is currently based in the Netherlands where she is designing a course commissioned by the World Health Organization on gender, intersectionality and health systems. She spent the last 15 years researching different ways in which gender disadvantages interact with socio-economic inequities and how that shapes women's life trajectories including impacts on health, education and exposure to violence. In this conversation we spoke about Sriparna's really fascinating research on marital rape in India and how specifically healthcare providers in India respond to marital rape and also about gendered violence in india more generally i learned a lot from this conversation and i can't wait to share it but before we start listening there's one thing that i thought i'd clarify we used the word nirbhaya to refer to the 2012 delhi gang rape case which made international headlines uh and the word nirbhaya means fearless in hindi and other indian languages and it's commonly used to refer to the victim and i thought i'd say that in case you're not familiar with that with that wording um but that's everything and uh, it's a really fascinating listen so let's dive in hi shri parna welcome to talking research how are you today i'm doing well how are you i'm good too i mean as as good as you can be in this current climate <laughs> um <laughs> yeah So to start tell us about yourself so how would you introduce yourself in a way that you like to be introduced um okay so i am a medical anthropologist by training i finished my masters and phd from brown and since then i have worked um both in applied and pure academic research for nearly the last uh, I think it's been 13 years since i graduated but i started work on um gender based violence a few years even before i graduated so at least a good 15 years now um and mm. i um you know lived in three different countries including the uk and uh, currently i live in the netherlands uh, but this is temporary and very much intend to go back to india and um, i used to work for the public health foundation of india shortly before mm-hmm. i left for the netherlands and now i'm working on a who project uh, looking at um, providing curriculum materials and designing a course on gender health systems and intersectionality so um, and i have a little daughter who's around 21 months mm-hmm. old um Uh, and and uh, she keeps me very busy so uh, with these two things that that's that's how my life is right now pretty busy pretty full and some research on the side oh i mean i i it's it's a bit hard to imagine how you're managing to accomplish all the <laughs> you know amazing research you're doing on the side <laughs> it's amazing but how did you get into researching sexual violence 
So I did my PhD work on domestic violence uh, in India, and that was way back. I conducted my fieldwork um, between 2004 and 2005, so a really long time ago. And um, now, of course, uh, many national surveys include questions on sexual violence as part of domestic violence surveys. But at the time, um, there weren't uh, even the National Family and Health Survey, if I'm not mistaken, uh, did not have too many questions on sexual violence uh, d- during mm. the, in the National Family and Health Survey round two, because that's what the data that would have been available to me at the time. But being an anthropologist, it was, of course, an ethnographic and qualitative uh, research. And I did it in an informal settlement in, in Mumbai. And um, I was very young when I started my fieldwork. I was only 23 years old. I did not have a whole lot of life experience. And I think that part that was part of the reason why uh, there was a big silence around sexual violence um, in the research itself. So, you know, women were much more willing to talk about being beaten and hit, uh, but not really um, about sexual violence, because in many instances, I was younger, much younger than the women I was speaking to. So um, I think that was partly the reason. And secondly, the reason was that there's anyway a lot of silence around sexual violence um, and marital rape in India. It's very hard to do research um, on this topic with uh, women because unless you have, uh, you know, a very long uh, association, it's, uh, it's not something that they open up to. Um, And the second, of course, is a more personal uh, reason. I'm a survivor of sexual assault and I always intended to do research on sexual violence. But, um, you know, the personal has always been very intensely political for me. But I felt I had to Mm. be mentally ready to take this on, um, both in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of my intellectual abilities but also in terms of uh, being able to cope with uh, uh, with the kind of uh, things that this may bring on for me so uh, when I returned to India from the UK in 2014 and began uh, an academic position in Bangalore uh, I started two research projects Um, one was on maternal health and one was on uh, sexual violence and um, that's when I felt that I was prepared to take uh, this project on. And mainly it was also a response intellectually to the fact that uh, sexual violence in India has been, especially in, in the public health literature, has been instrumentalized to a large degree, which means that mm-hmm. it's always seen as a means to an end for larger health-related goals. So we must prevent violence against women because uh, if we do not do so, then it leads to lower rates of contraception adoption, lower child immunization. Um, so it's not necessarily seen as a legitimate end in itself. Um, so I was also sort of responding to that, um, looking at sexual violence, not just as a problem which uh, affects the family, but also which affects individual women themselves. Um, so that's how I mm. got into this. Wow, I mean that 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 all sounds so interesting, and I mean especially what you're saying about sexual violence not being seen as an end in itself. Uh, I haven't been able to you know formulate it like that, but that makes so much sense. 
because that is how that 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 is the general attitude to it isn't it uh, instead of it being treated as something that has that can have a huge impact on the victim survivor's life so how did you get into researching marital rape specifically in india and that too in a you know health based con- uh, context so um i started um like i said it sort of took off from where my dissertation ended yeah. um and because i didn't have the opportunity to look at how um you know the problem of marital rape was understood articulated responded to by legal systems and health systems i thought that um, this would be a good place to start you know uh, looking at these problems and um, yeah. i think post uh, nirbhaya um, there was the justice verma commission report as you know in 2013 which um, mm-hmm. s- specifically mentioned that marital rape should be criminalized in india but of course that did not happen uh marital rape is not a criminal offense in india and within the legal system consent is presumed to be permanent and continuous and efforts to criminalize it has been stymied by using fallacious arguments by lawmakers so they will say things like oh marriage is a sac- sacrament in india uh women will file false complaints if you do this so all kinds of ridiculous arguments are put forward uh mm-hmm. to not criminalize it having said so i don't think that criminalizing it alone is enough as a response because even if they do uh the reporting is going to be quite low because uh, yeah. uh domestic violence which i've studied extensively i know that the reporting rate of domestic violence to authorities um is is extremely low and i think in case of uh, sexual violence within marriage it will be very low as well so and also you know we marital rape is a very i feel it's a very narrow concept because um it's only looking at instances which can be defined as rape within the marriage but there are all forms of sexual coercion and uh, reproductive um coercions within um marriage so not allowing women to access contraception or use abortions or forcing mm-hmm. uh, them to do an abortion i mean all of this um should come within the larger um uh, sort of uh, system of sexual violence that we study within marriage so you know there has been a focus on marital rape but marital rape is not the only form of um sexual violence that women experience within marriage so um it's and and the other thing that i wanted to respond to in terms of you know the silence around sexual violence in india um there has in the 1970s and 80s there were a lot of um you know movements there was the indian women's movement and there was a lot of efforts by women's activists at that time based on two landmark cases uh, the rape of this uh, young tribal girl in uh, maharashtra called mathura i don't know if you've heard about mm. this the mathura rape case no not this one where um, there was this uh, young tribal girl who was raped by two or three police officers uh, inside a police station and uh, the uh, high court in maharashtra had acquitted the police of the lower court had initially convicted but the high court had overturned the judgment saying that uh oh because she's a tribal girl she's habituated to 
um, having intercourse before marriage and therefore this does not count as rape. So this was one, uh, uh, you know, landmark case, which is called the Mathura rape case and where um, both this and then there was another case in Hyderabad where a Muslim woman was raped um, and again, it was a case of custodial rape where her husband was falsely accused of something. And uh, both of these instances uh, galvanized women's activists and it led, led to major changes in what we know as the Indian Evidence Act. So neither of these were instances of marital rape, but there were certainly instances of rape and sexual violence. And of course, there was the, uh, you know, the very famous uh, case of um, in, in Manipur as well of uh, uh, rape by the Indian Army officials um, of, of yeah. a young woman, um, which was yeah. more recent, I think, in the early 1990s, if I'm not mistaken, and led to a protest by Manipuri mothers who had, you know, and it was a naked protest uh, to... Yeah. to uh, asking the government to take back AFSPA and punish those who were guilty. So it was, again, an instance of custodial rape as well as uh, possibly murder of this woman. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, it's, um, it's not as if sexual violence has not received attention, um, but, in, but it's not within sort of the larger discipline of public health um, as I was saying before, there is still a kind of instrumental approach. So I think within women's and gender studies, as well as, um, uh, you know, within sociology, perhaps there has been a lot more attention, at least paid to these forms of uh, sexual violence. And uh, But marital rape just seems, or sexual violence within marriage just seems so um, common that it almost doesn't seem worthy of being attended to. Right. Yeah, I mean, even in in England, for example, I was reading the other day that marital rape wasn't uh, criminalized until late last century. So I think it was sometime in the 1980s. I might be wrong here. I'll have to go and check. But it was very recently where it was criminalized here as well, which is, you know, surprising. But uh, I wanted to ask, custodial rape is uh, essentially when you're raped in custody right so police or army yeah, custody yeah. and armed forces special powers act yeah, or afspa yeah, is the yeah. afspa does not does not really give armed forces the right to rape but it, it allows course, yeah. them the right to pick up um, potential suspects without any you know legitimate proof um so it yeah. sort of allows them um, to overstep and and because you know there is there is no uh, oversight uh, in in, the, in this case because they can do certain things under situations of conflict, um, most of them uh, get away with it. And and there was this you know the the in in Kashmir as well, right? There was this uh, mass rape in a village mm, uh, yeah. not so long ago, again by the armed forces. So I think that. Uh, in in many of these situations of uh, where you have protracted conflict or insurgencies, um, especially in the Indian context, you would see these. And these issues do get attention, but I think public memory is short and the extent to which victims get justice or not is uh, really up for debate. 
Yeah, for sure. And I mean, Armed Forces Special Powers Act, it's essentially this legal act that, like you said, gives the armed forces, uh, you know, powers, unprecedented powers, and they're currently used in Kashmir and this instance. In the Northeast as well, yeah. In several states. In the, in the Northeast, yeah, in the Northeast regions of India. Yeah, so so all these conflict zones which you're talking about. So what do we know about marital rape? You're talking about, you know, how it's legal, it's not criminalized in India. Right. Uh, right. And uh, it's not something that is widely accepted at all to be a common form of sexual violence. It's really not taken seriously. But what, what else do we know about in, uh, marital rape in India? Like, Do we have any idea about how common it is? Yeah, so we do have some, well, we do have the National Family and Health Survey, which has, uh, which is, you know, our sort of source of data for um, all things related to reproductive health, uh, including sexual violence and domestic violence in India. Um, but mm-hmm. of course, um, you know, like I said, underreporting is a big problem. And uh, my opinion as a researcher is that even within the NFHS4, there's a lot of underreporting of um, uh, sexual violence within marriage. So as of, uh, uh, you know, 2015-16, which is the last round of NFHS for which data is available, only 8% of women reported sexual coercion of some kind mm-hmm. at, at an all-India level. Um, there are large interstate disparities. Of course, some states reported maybe 10, 12%. Others reported 1% or 2%. Um, and what the NFHS does is uh, there are specific questions which measure sexual violence. So the questions are, have you ever been physically forced into unwanted sex by a husband or a partner? Have you been forced into other unwanted sexual acts by husband or partner? Have you ever been physically forced to perform sexual acts that you didn't want to? And there's been an additional question added in um, the last round of NFHS, which looks at sexual violence that women experience during pregnancy, um, of which 3.3% of Indian women reported that they did. Um, So, Mm. I mean, the thing is that there's not a huge amount that we know um, from the NFHS data because of underreporting. But having said that, when I did do the, the you know, sort of scoping the literature out for this uh, in, in the paper that I wrote uh, on the health system responses to sexual violence within marriage, um, I found that there were several studies where, um, which, you know, much smaller studies, which looked at uh, populations, which in public health terms are considered key populations, um, and mostly they are in the context of HIV, its prevention where the rate of sexual violence that was reported was, you know, between anywhere between 60 to 99% in some instances. So much, much Mm -hmm. higher than what you would see in in the NFHS. And because these studies are small, I think um, you, you know, perhaps the researchers had a much uh, sort of longer period to establish rapport with um, women so they could speak up. Um, and also because they were looking at, you know, uh, perhaps uh, husbands who consumed alcohol or who were, you know, in, in specific uh, occupations like uh, truck drivers or migrant workers where, uh, you know, the literature seems to suggest that 
there are higher risks of sexual violence for these women compared to other women. But I don't know whether uh, why that is the case. Is it because we know more about them because we have studied them more and hence the rates seem higher? Or whether there's something specific to these kinds of occupations that their husbands have, uh, which, which you know, puts them at higher risk of sexual violence. Um, mm-hmm. Some studies have noted uh, some links between, um, you know, uh, husbands who um, pay for sex. So basically, um, you know, use the services of sex workers and mm-hmm. uh, consumption of pornography and uh, high rates of sexual violence within the marriage. So uh, perhaps there are some, I mean, it could be a combination of different factors. It could be the fact that, um, you know, in, in certain situations, um, there are some occupations where which leads, leads the husbands into these kinds of risky situations. And therefore, uh, women end up experiencing, their, their partners do end up experiencing more sexual violence. Um, or it could just be the case that uh, there has been a lot of effort to study these populations because uh, of uh, the need to prevent HIV AIDS and therefore we know a lot more about them and therefore we have a more accurate picture compared to what I would call populations which are not considered key populations in the public health literature, which is essentially the rest of the population. Right. Mm, so we right. so then a discourse emerges which you which which I you know, have a great discomfort with as an anthropologist and a feminist that it seems like only as if poor men um, subject their partners to sexual violence, which is not true because I think women of all classes um, and uh, socioeconomic status experience sexual violence. You've looked at how healthcare authorities specifically respond to um you know, marital rape, which is very interesting because I think generally what we know about services in India is that they're oversubscribed, they're inadequate, and uh, women don't have support the same way that they would in, you know, in in a a Western country, so in countries like the Netherlands or the UK, so there there aren't, you know, there isn't that state support to women flee you know leaving uh, an abusive household right. or uh, leaving and i mean the fact that there's so so much social stigma uh to uh, aimed at someone who 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 would leave and also you know the different factors where they aren't allowed to leave but even if they did there isn't as much state support at all but uh you've looked at how healthcare providers respond to marital rape so what do we know about that so my study actually um looked at um, six different questions. So uh, firstly, I tried to see whether healthcare providers consider uh, this to be a serious issue, whether there Mm. were protocols in hospitals when sexual violence was reported by married women, uh, whether providers felt competent to handle these issues, uh, whether they referred patients to support services such as counseling and legal support, and um, then the processes by which they undercover, uh, they uncover incidences of sexual violence, even when it's not directly reported to them, and uh, whether they believe finally that there is a role for health institutions in addressing these issues. So mm. one of the things that I was, you know, really gratified uh, to find is that 
uh, there is a lot of sympathy among healthcare providers, both physicians and nurses, for women experiencing sexual violence. They understand that it's a problem and uh, they would really like to do something about it. But uh, their hands are tied in most cases because, as you said, the services are oversubscribed. And um, they already have, a, you know, large patient loads. Most hospitals don't have a protocol or any kind of policy document to deal with instances of marital sexual violence. In case of other kinds of sexual violence, which is not marital in India, it becomes a medical legal case. So there's there's clearly a protocol for that because the police needs to be involved in it. Mm. But because marital rape is, does not fall into the you know into the category of uh, medical legal case, um, there is really no protocol that can be applied. Um, again, going back to the really nice Justice Verma Commission report, um, they did uh, suggest that these one-stop crisis centers be set up where women who were experiencing any form of sexual violence could uh, come to seek help, right, from, uh, you know, help with their physiological support um, to um, psychological Mm -hmm. support um, as well and legal support if necessary. But um, the one-stop crisis centers have been a hit and a miss and in many areas they're not functioning as well uh, as they should. they were supposed to be some 700 one-stop crisis centers to be, you know, initiated and established by now. But of course, none of that has happened. So um, in, in terms of uh, where health systems are concerned, like I said, because one of the sort of the, you know, the positive sides of instrumentalizing sexual violence is that there is a recognition that it's a problem, right, within the public health care system. Yeah. They know that if a woman is undergoing these problems, then all these other goals that they have of, you know, having child immunizations or having her adopt contraception, none of the other things are really going to work as well as they would have liked. So, in fact, I, I remember having this uh, sort of very sad conversation with, um, um, you know, this physician working in a very rural area in northeast India in Assam where I did a, a project on maternal health. and. He was talking about how um, there's been a shortage of uh, intrauterine um, um, devices, the IUDs, which are called copperties normally in his hospital. And uh, so I said, but, you know, you can give other spacing devices or other things. And the thing is that the, in, the IUDs are usually inserted within 48 hours of giving birth, um, sometimes without the knowledge of the husband's because that's how the the wives would want it so and my and my question my follow up question to him was but then you know isn't it the case that they would anyway get some respite they have just given birth right so maybe for a couple of months they they shouldn't really be having sex and then he just looked at me very sadly and he said oh, you have no idea how cruel people can be right and he just stopped at that to signify that even that two month of respite that women should get after giving birth to not, uh, you know, have sex, it's not it's it's not something you can take for granted. So the yeah. the IUDs, you know, if there's a shortage of IUDs, then it becomes uh, then the woman may end up having a, a pregnancy that she did not really want because she was forced to have sex, and then 
uh, you know, you have the problem of, okay, can she access abortion uh, in a timely fashion and all of those other problems that come along with this. Um, so, it's, yeah. you know, it's sort of, it's really, really important that women have access to, um, you know, reproductive autonomy as well within their marriage, which, uh, again, is not something um, that falls under the umbrella term marital rape. Because you, you need not be raped in order to become pregnant, but even sexual coercion of some kind uh, or not being, um, you know, allowed to use contraception by husbands or in-laws um, is going to lead to horrible health outcomes for the woman. Yeah, of course. And, you know, just to go back to your point about contracep- contraception, men in those contexts don't you know, agree to using contraceptive. So even if the woman is pushing for a contraceptive, she doesn't get a say because men just refuse to wear condoms. Not just in those contexts. I would say in most contexts, right? And it's not just in India. I think if you look overall, uh, you know, why don't we have a male contraceptive so far that has, you know, uh, that has been manufactured by pharmaceutical companies? There is such a broad range of female contraception, but uh, when it comes to male contraceptives other than condoms, there's nothing. So, yeah. um, you know, clearly it's almost because it is a woman's burden to carry a child and it must be her responsibility to make sure that she's not pregnant, which shouldn't be the case. But it still is. Yeah, and in fact, in India, the you will, you may be surprised to know this, the widely used quote-unquote contraception is sterilization. Mm-hmm. The NFHS data also shows that, that uh, you know, there's a clear correlation between, um, you know, being rural, having a low level of education and high levels of sterilization, while uh, women in urban areas with high levels of education um, have other devices to choose from. But in rural areas, we, you know, they, they don't. And, uh, and and I just wanted to make another quick mention because of the times that we are living in, in you know, in this pandemic with COVID-19, that a lot of these needs of women, whether uh, with regard to sexual and reproductive health, are just going to get, um, you know, blindsided and neglected and ignored, not just now, but for a long time because resources will get diverted. So these needs will, you know, will go completely into the back burner, especially in resource-poor settings like India. But I think it will happen overall, not just in India. Thank you for also correcting me and, you know, that uh, it's not just in those contexts, but, you know, every context that men aren't, men refuse to wear condoms or men aren't as inclined to use contraception as women are because, uh, you know, I, I think what i've read is the, the attention that the male refusal to contraceptives gets from uh, gets uh, when looking at a lower class is much higher than it does in other contexts so you know it, it's I, I mean i was inadvertently contributing to that by highlighting just that when it's um you know it's it's, it's, it's true in in most contexts i think and yeah. in most countries and um, therefore you know the contraceptive pill is probably the most widely used uh, sort of uh, object of choice for contraception 
when when it comes yeah. to and partly it's also you know we say men refuse to do it it's it's also because men are not really taught that this is their responsibility too right i mean if you grow up mm. with a feeling um, of being entitled and not having to worry about you know right from periods to sexual harassment to everything else that a young girl has to go through naturally you won't think about this so um yeah. it's also you know what kind of society have we created where we don't teach little boys about these things about their responsibility about consent which is sort of the crux of what uh the problems with sexual violence are all about right of course definitely and i think especially in the context of marital rape uh i can't remember the last time i saw a popular culture representation of you know marital rape um it's it's all it's 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 just not something that is a concern the same way that you know stranger rape is right, in india right. especially you know like but and this i want to tie into what you mentioned about the kind of cases in india that receive attention and they're all sort of very similar patterns where you know the woman is a respectable or relatable right you know person and then it's it's very brutal like the act of violence is extremely extremely brutal right. you know and the 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 perpetrators are always strangers and often happen to be lower class men right, right? working class men yes yes yeah yes sorry yes working class men. yeah um and i think that this is probably a good time although this question is something you might have wanted to ask later in our conversation but i think it's a good time to actually think about you know when i was saying that um how do we think about the concept of grievability or grievable deaths with uh, judith butler talks about in her book frames of war so she's really talking about you know whether victims of uh, violence during a time of war um deserve public mourning um deserve the kind of emotions that uh, we give as an audience um and and she say, and and she uses three concepts to kind of um theorize this point and um she says you know she she talks about what's a valid life um whether that life when it when when that life is lost is that actually um something that we mourn so and she compares the death of a say a suicide bomber versus uh, deaths of civilians or deaths of soldiers during a time of war and how there are s- such different responses to these two different kinds of deaths um and then she uses the second concept which is the concept of framing so through images uh whether they are photographs or whether they are video footage um or uh or even sort of you know text and the discourses that circulate um how do some victims of war become individuals who are worthy of grieving while others don't and the third one yeah. she uses is precarity uh which is i think less applicable to this concept so i'll use the first two concepts to th- you know to to precisely talk about what you were saying is that we have to 
almost be confronted by a spectacular case of sexual violence uh, inflicted upon a woman uh, that we can relate to in order for it to shake us out of our stupor, um, which is what happened with the Nirbhaya case, right? So uh, there was so much of public outrage and protests and 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 that was the case because she was somebody who, you know, we could all relate to uh, as as a young woman. I mean, you know, you you would have been much younger, of course, because this happened in twenty twelve. Um, but I was in my twenties at the time, and uh, or maybe in my in my early thirties, and it was something that just was it was so horrific, and the details were you know so gruesome, and they were covered all over that you just couldn't escape it. But so, yeah. and and of course, you know, um, that was obviously not the only instance of this kind of horrific violence. It's just the one which probably got the most amount of attention because I actually remember reading about two more similar instances, one in Jharkhand, one in West Bengal, which happened a few months after the Nirbhaya incident. There were two reports on NDTV, but we didn't hear anything much about these incidents at all. Uh, In one case, the woman was uh, identified as not being a local, as being a migrant woman, um, and she may then this may have been an act of retribution because of some you know land related issues. I mean the details were very fuzzy, um, but we know that you know the, the same kind of things happened to her as well, and she died. So uh, especially in the case in West Bengal, Jharkhand also something similar happened. So so when we talk about you know the concept of grievability and whether this is a life worthy of that kind of outrage, that kind of mourning. Clearly, we don't think that, you know, women, uh, poor women or women from rural areas or Dalit women in India who routinely experience sexual violence or Muslim women who experience sexual violence during times of communal riots, um, except for some, you know, sort of social justice warriors or activists who would bring these issues to light and even then they have to constantly fight to establish uh, you know their credibility like it happened with the Gujarat riots Um, you don't really hear of um, these beyond the 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 few months that the incident circulates in public memory people just forget about it and it's not covered right and so so I think that, you know, that concept of grievability is definitely applicable, even in the case of marital rape, where I think that that kind of violence has been so normalized and because so many women um, experience it, that it doesn't seem like it's worthy of um, grieving, especially when it happens to someone which the middle class newspaper reading audience, you know, cannot relate to. And the second thing around framing is also, you know, something very similar that if uh, you you sort of frame her or you, you position her as someone who we can all uh, sort of feel attached to because she could be our sister, our daughter, our mother, then she becomes uh, someone against whom this sort of violence needs to be prevented. So... Um, 
which clearly again does not apply to you know women from uh, many different um, sections of the society so there's a and since uh, you are uh, you have a background in linguistics i think you would find the article is a very interesting uh, paper by Hart and Gilbertson in um, in in Australia where they do this mm. kind of analysis um, with the uh, women who are indigenous versus white women and how the media responses um to these two cases are just so different um uh, based on the ethnicity of the victim so and and i think that's that's exactly what we see in india as well we don't see as much coverage um based on unless it becomes a really political case like it happened with unnau um in in yeah. uttar pradesh and uh, it's um, you know so and and in terms of um, i just remembered the other thing that you had asked me was uh, about sources of data so other than the nfhs there's the national crime records bureau as well but that one because marital rape is not a crime will not have any data on um, sexual violence within marriage but you will get data on sexual violence and rapes um, by by i won't say strangers but by people who are not your husband um yeah. so because it need not be a stranger who has raped you in fact most rapes uh, and instances of sexual assaults happen um not by strangers yeah by someone you know and trust yeah 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 i mean the 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 case last year the hyderabad rape case right right i think that's the second case that got as much attention nationally and as much anger uh, until the perpetrators alleged perpetrators actually were shot by yeah. the police yeah. <laughs> you know i genuinely thought that that was leading up to the same sim- to a similar sort of unrest i think that would have uh, because the woman young woman in question was a vet and uh, you know she seemed respectable by uh, all sort of uh, conventional standards of respectability yeah. so um and i you know sometimes when i think about do we because often when you live in a country that is not yours you are asked to comment upon epidemic proportions of sexual violence in india and why is this happening and you know is it is it increased reporting is it increased coverage um or is it an actual increase um i am at a real loss to explain what is happening because honestly i don't have a good sense of whether all three things are happening uh sometimes i think maybe it is increased reporting increased coverage um but simultaneously i also think that there has been a, a huge patriarchal backlash um you know in in india against victims of sexual violence so yeah. i think a lot of it is also happening because um of the sort of backlash where not just victims are not believed but also um you know there is there is a real sense of loss of entitlement that perhaps uh, young men feel um and therefore they feel um, entitled to act in these kinds of ways yeah and i think what you said about the newspaper reading middle class i think that's so important to emphasize because who is all the 
reporting aimed towards who is who's all the content right, right. aimed towards and it's it's not you know most of the country actually it's uh, people who can you know afford to, to you know have those living room conversations and uh, you know have an opinion that will be listened to within their community and uh, you know it, it it really makes us think about who really gets a say about which rape matters and which doesn't and it's 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 really only one section of society right i think it would be very interesting to do you know an uh, a, a a research project on um indic language uh, mm-hmm. coverage of this kind of uh, yeah. stories so whether it yeah. is in hindi or telugu or um, you know assamese or um yeah. any of the other languages i think that would be really really interesting to you know sort of look at the whether the frames are similar to what you would see in an english um, uh, newspaper a mainstream english newspaper or whether the framing is different or whether because from the hindi uh, some of the hindi language uh, programming ravish kumar is of course an exception he's one of my favorite favorite journalists as well mm-hmm. yeah but it's it's very very sensationalized right Definitely. i mean there's this music and uh, you know like camera which is really close up and a um, big flashing red banner i know exactly so i would be surprised if there wasn't Uh, the framing was not similar because whether it's newspapers or whether it's tv you are i mean especially still kind of um you you still assuming that the population has uh, you know some level of literacy right otherwise they wouldn't be able to yeah. read read the newspaper so um but it's um how to what extent um the conversations are the same um would be an interesting research project uh, to do a co- comparative thing i mean another thing that strikes me is how common it is to you know read about these things i don't think there's a single day where a newspaper any newspaper won't report or won't carry the news of any rape cases i mean yeah you can't escape you it you can't escape it i remember i was very very i don't even remember how old i was when i asked my mom what shoshan means and shoshan is the word for exploitation, exploitation. in hindi yeah you know what's like yeah. shoshan and balatkar which means rape uh yeah. it's it's just uh, you're so you it's just around you isn't it and yeah. and and uh, and everyone seems to know that this is what it's happening but there seems to be this collective lack of will i don't even know like this this immunity to it which yeah yeah i think it's just desensitization yeah it's a complete desensitization it's a numbing of you know just just it, from our own experiences as young girls in you know using public transport in india um the i i don't think i can come across a single person who can say if you've ever used a public transport buses or trains in any part of india that you can you could have ex- escaped being groped yeah. or harassed right yeah. i mean it's it's everybody's experience yeah and the fact is that it shouldn't have happened but it has and maybe worse for some people and you know for some women and it's um 
it's it's just considered to be normal yeah it's it's what you live with it's it's unfortunately the price that you pay for being a woman but the, you know you pay, you pay a really huge price with your mental health and with your physical autonomy and yeah. why should it be okay yeah. uh, for someone to violate my physical space yeah absolutely absolutely and even like what you're saying about the nirbhaya case and i remember i was must have been 13 or 14 at the time and reading this really gory description of everything that the men did to her in you know one of the leading national newspapers i used to read you know national newspapers at that point every day and you know it was i really don't think that information was suitable for oh no for public for public yeah. consumption on that scale but the amount that it was emphasized you know every single detail of what they did to her i don't know if that was to uh to to sort of make us aware of what she went through or if it was for newspapers to sell newspapers like i don't i don't even know what the intent i don't know i don't know how much of it was from the perspective of the victim or from yeah. you know from empathy but um i think it's two things one is you know there's almost this kind of uh, gaze which is this this you know pornographic gaze which is uh, which which is you you see when you read these kinds of uh, newspaper coverage where these details are you know we they could have just said that she was brutally attacked and she had extensive injuries and that would have been enough for us to imagine how bad it was right yeah um so that's one thing and and the second thing was i think which is sort of more subtle and perhaps even not conscious on the part of uh the people who are writing these stories and the editors is that you know we have this need to pathologize the perpetrators of this kind of violence because otherwise it would seem as if every person is capable of inflicting this kind of pain right yeah to other i'm not saying that's the case i i i think that you know in in some regard these men may have been special in terms of the pleasure they took in inflicting the kind of pain and you know completely dehumanizing uh jyoti singh uh where she, she wasn't even because you can't do this to a living being right i'm mean, forget about a human being but you can't do this to another living being um so i i think that there's a complete uh dehumanization i mean i i don't even have the words to express um but i think there is a need to pathologize the perpetrators because otherwise it would just seem like um you know is this an ordinary person doing yeah. this and does it mean that every ordinary person can do yeah. this yeah and in a diverse attention from and, our you know our family members our brothers fathers uncles friends who exactly that. who may who may not commit that sort of sexual violence but perhaps who are you know complicit in perpetrating other less brutal forms of violence for sure so i think that uh, you know that's there there probably two things which are happening uh, some at a very conscious deliberate level to sell more papers as you said and the other at a less conscious level to kind of distance the the perpetrators and to other them in some ways 
Yeah. And, and, and I mean, these are really not easy conversations to have. Uh, like you said, it's it's lived reality for for so many women or like, you know, if not all women in in India. These are such hard conversations to have. But, you know, what you're talking about grievability and who's the deserving victim in the eyes of uh, the media or, or the general public in India, it really makes me think about, you know, myself and even like, the the activism that i'm doing what what really will that change for you know those women in india who are at the fringes fringes of society so you know the fact that i have the privilege to talk about it and i'll probably be listened to because you know i'm from a middle class background you know right. but that same attention or that same uh, you know trust won't be given to someone who's from a working class working class woman or a migrant woman or a dalit dalit woman right. and i think it's so important to think about that constantly as well because like you said who am i really speaking for when i speak about sexual violence in india right right and i think that it's the me too conversation has really left out the you know the 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 mainstream me too conversation has left out the plight of garment workers and domestic workers. And, and I wrote a piece on the BBC on this because um, I was actually involved in resolving this case of sexual harassment, which a domestic help was facing in, in Bangalore. And um, it was, that's when I understood, you know, the full scale of the problem and how common it is for so many domestic helps to act, to experience this. But they would never be included in the Me Too movement because they don't have the privilege, they don't have, you know, um, the, the tools at their fingertips. And I think that um, the work that you're doing is really good, which is sort of bringing awareness about this. But I also think that there needs to be a lot more support for grassroots activism. Yeah. So, you know, many of these initiatives need to be tied up with initiatives linked to livelihood linked to education linked to health because violence is a cross-cutting problem um it's not just uh, you know it's it's not just in in bedrooms that sexual violence is yeah. happening it's happening uh, in 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 the in the fact on the factory floor it's happening in our in workspaces it's maybe even happening in health settings yeah. It's definitely happening in educational institutions. So if we can embed a more, uh, you know, empathetic uh, feminist uh, practice uh, where we sensitize both men and women to issues of consent and gender-based violence, I think we would go a lot further um, than leaving it in its silo and, you know, creating these echo chambers where we are preaching to the choir, essentially. Mm. So um, I don't know how exactly we should go about doing this, but I certainly feel that, you know, building coalitions and collectives that cut across class, caste lines is really, really important. Um, so it, it just doesn't become reified as a problem because it's also an issue where, you know, it's just like upper middle class privileged women screaming about sexual harassment, right? Yes. And then th then it won't be taken seriously. So it's... It's the, you know, it's like damned if you do, damned if you yeah. don't. But in the long run, I think it's very important to build those kinds of coalitions and bridges. Um, and, and, and I don't think that has happened to that extent in India. 
you know, we haven't seen that kind of uh, solidarity uh, with women across classes and across caste um, in, in any area. And I think that's absolutely essential. Yeah, yeah. And what you're saying that the activism has to go hand in hand with, um, you know, the sort of intersectional activism because it's so important to, you know, spread it out. It's a very crude way of phrasing it, but uh, really spread the potential impact out. I want to go back to marital rape and I think I want to ask you how can we better support marital rape survivors specifically in an Indian context? What are their support needs and how can healthcare providers and the general public support them better? So the healthcare needs, as you imagine, can imagine, uh, I mean, immediately there will, of course, be physiological health needs, uh, you know, access to contraception, abortion, uh, treatment for uh, sexually transmitted infections and wounds and injuries. Um, psychological support and um, and social and economic support as well um, if they you know interlinkages with different services uh, whether it's the legal system whether it's with nonprofits um, who can help them sort of get back on their feet if they want to leave their husbands I mean there are so many options that are available you know that that there isn't like a single trajectory which a survivor of uh, marital uh, sexual violence uh, can go has there could be multiple based yeah. on what they would really like to do sometimes women may not want to leave they may just want the harm to stop and for the instances mm-hmm. of violence to stop so um how can we support i think um there are quite a few good non-governmental organizations which are working in this area. I'm certainly aware of one in Bombay called Dilasa, who have had, uh, you know, long exchanges with on, on this particular issue. And in almost every city there are. So we can support by uh, financially supporting these organizations, by volunteering for them, and also by creating more of these organizations because I don't think there are enough. Right, so in a you you may have four or five such organizations in a city like Bombay, which is which has a huge population and you know a, a very high need um, for this sort of thing. Um, the government should also, uh, I think, have these kinds of centers built into the public health infrastructure, which we don't right now. Um, our public mm. health infrastructure, as this pandemic has shown, is is you know sort of really uh, in a big mess. It's under resourced, it's yeah. underfinanced uh, in every possible way. So I think that there there needs to be a big sort of rethink on how to integ- provide an integrated and holistic approach to health in India. And within that, we need to embed uh, violence prevention and mitigation strategies um, and and um, so you know have routine kind of screenings for women who are coming in with other complaints um, which could mm. signify that they are experiencing sexual violence or domestic violence uh, we don't have any of that in place so I think that there needs to be uh, a lot more and I don't think it's impossible to do it um, I certainly think that, you know, with more training of healthcare providers and 
having a better distribution of their workload um they they can uh, they can certainly help survivors of uh, of of sexual violence in marriages um but but yeah. we need a commitment of funds uh we need better yeah. education and better training for uh, frontline staff as well uh, currently the medical curriculum does not have a huge amount of uh, anything related to gender in it so mm-hmm. all of that needs to be embedded um uh, again um sehat which is the center for inquiry into health and allied themes in bombay has done this really nice study uh and an intervention which came out of it where they tried to embed gender sensitivity into the medical curriculum uh in in districts in district hospitals um and medical colleges in maharashtra uh i don't know whether similar things are happening across the country but we need these kinds of efforts to be you know quadrupled uh, exponentially increased not even quadrupled right yeah so you know it's not as if we are short of ideas there are things we can do but we need the will to actually do it yeah. and the money um committed yeah. to it yeah i was reading the other day that indian healthcare system is one of the least funded healthcare systems in the world state yeah. healthcare system. yeah yeah it's been yeah. steadily shrinking we started off with i think 3 point something in the 1990s and now it's come to 1 point something as a share of the gdp while mm-hmm. a country like yeah. i don't know the uk spends what at least 10% of its gdp on healthcare i would i would assume yeah and you know with our population constantly growing and uh, such diverse needs yeah massively underfunded I mean this is all really heavy stuff to be studying and you know to be constantly engaging with this is really not easy work easy research easy activism you know how do you is it is it emotionally draining and how do you balance your emotional well-being with it it is emotionally extremely draining um, and in fact my husband he he tells me you know why don't you study something happy for a change <laughs> <laughs> why do you and and i have thought about this in fact you know in my future research i do i do want to sort of start looking at more positive things to study as well but uh, having the training that i do i think i naturally gravitate towards uh, these kinds of topics as well as my own experience um i think we all need to sort of um, be really mindful of the impact that this kind of work can have on our mental well-being uh, and certainly there have been moments when i have felt extremely spent exhausted uh, very sad in fact um, by some of the things that i have heard um so i i try to what i, I try to do two things one is um, do things which kind of restore my sense of calm so you know maybe go for walks um mm. just be in nature um i'm not very good at meditating although i've tried a few times but i should get back to it and the second thing is i do like watching films so i i try to not watch very dark stuff in my free time so that uh, sometimes it 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 doesn't always end up being like that because you know sometimes you do come across a very interesting movie and it ends up being quite dark but Uh, i do think it's important to kind of make those compartmentalizations otherwise you'll just be sort of dragged into this 
real <laughs> abyss of darkness. Um, yeah. So, and it it does some, you know, make you kind of question um, human beings as a species, really, when you work on the kind of things that we work on. Yeah, I mean, it's for me, it's the uh, same. Like, can't watch heavy movies at all. <laughs> um, and I think I've sort of acknowledged that I'm just not a movie person. You know, I can only watch like movies that I can forget about, and also like. <laughs> really trashy bollywood celebrity interviews right <laughs> my guilty pleasure um i think one final thing i want to ask you is if you had to give one piece of um, advice or one practical thing that the listeners can do to tackle sexual violence on there and in you know some I, i don't know if we can apply it to the context of marital rape specifically but generally mm. like one thing that listeners can do to tackle sexual violence what would that be i think the one thing that i would advise everyone to tackle including myself is to rein in the inner antigs that we all have <laughs> and uh, i want to end on this light note because i feel that you know we all are conditioned with certain scripts and uh, sexual scripts included where you know uh, we judge based on outfits and behaviors and comportment and all of these other external factors right and that starts the the, the spiral of victim blaming so if yeah. we can all rein that in whether we are men or women where you know we need to think of sexual violence as an act of power not as an act of lust and the moment we change the way in which we think about sexual violence and we frame it a lot of things will change and reining in uh, you know the, the the inner critics within us where we you know we are forever looking for how could this have been prevented um by by thinking of things that the victim could have done to prevent it uh, that's where the problem starts so mm. if we can all do that I think we will go a long way in um trying to at least mitigate the harms of it uh if not prevent it altogether and also be very mindful of how power works um mm. in our lives um both power and privilege and you know um and the kind of and the way in which we exert power and the way in which power is exerted upon us mm. um so if we can do these two things I think we you know we we are somewhat on the path to building some form of resilience against sexual violence mm yeah that's very empowering but thank you so much for speaking to me i mean i really feel like this conversation has conversation has been this sort of mini education for me <laughs> like i've learned so much i mean uh i'm just going to go and sort of absorb it and uh you know try to like take it all in but it's been amazing thank you for talking to me and thank you for your really amazing work we're also lucky that we have you looking at these things and telling us about how we can potentially prevent sexual violence so thank you so much shiparna thank you so much asmita for inviting me it's been great to have this chat with you and i'm so happy that a young uh, person such as yourself is has taken this on to do this it's hard exhausting tiring work so i wish you all the luck and hope that you can keep this going for many many years to come oh thank you mm-hmm.
ओके दैट वॉज श्री पर्णा चट्टोपाध्याय एंड अमेजिंग रिसर्च एंड जस्ट आई मीन आई एम जस्ट फैन इन जनरल बट लेट मी नो योर थाट्स इन दिस एपिसोड एंड ऑन द पॉडकास्ट मोर ब्रॉडली इज वेल आई हैव पुट ऑल द सोशल मीडिया हैंडल्स एंड द ई मेल एड्रेस इन एवरीथिंग एल्स इन द पॉडकास्ट डिस्क्रिप्शन एंड इज ऑल्सो लिंक्स टू ऑर्गेनाइजेशन दैट सपोर्ट सर्वाइवर्स ऑफ सेक्शुअल वायलेंस इन वेरियस कंट्रीज इफ यू नीड दैट that's also in the episode description and if you're interested in the podcast description and if you're interested in finding out more about the specific research paper that we spoke about in this conversation it's in the episode description yes got that right and thank you so much for tuning in it's really really amazing just seeing the numbers on this podcast and seeing everyone listening i mean it's going because you're listening to it so thank you so much and Let me know if there's any feedback at all. Let me know your thoughts and I'll be back next week with another really fascinating conversation. So that's everything from me. I hope you're home. I hope you're safe and I hope you're taking care of yourself and of everyone else around you. Take care and be safe. I am Asmita and this is Talking Research.